are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this, that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Take them take, and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads. And all may know that those things whereof they were made informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly, and keepest the law." As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification, until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia... When they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together. They took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. When they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing and some another among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty of the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. For the multitude of the people followed after crying, away with him. And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, may I speak unto thee? Who said, canst thou speak Greek? Art thou not that Egyptian which before these days made us an uproar and led us out in the wilderness, four thousand men that were murderers? But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word today, and we thank Him for it. Let's pause for prayer before we begin today our study. Father God, we are gathered here in this place asking You to meet us as well through the Word. Father, we would ask that each and every one that has come out today, that You would bless them, their families, help them, Father, with their decisions, give them wisdom, Allow them, Father, to see you more intimately than ever before. These moments, such as have been set aside as we've opened with the Word of God, we would ask now, Father, that the Holy Spirit would solely and exclusively be our teacher for these moments. May we gather what you want us to know. Take us where you want us to be. Zero in on each one of our hearts, Father, that you would know exactly. Show us what we need to do exactly to be more like Jesus Christ. 
which is what Paul literally was, was a servant, and his life was made to mimic his Lord and Savior, Jesus. Uh, Father, take us and use us through this coming week, not because we're great, but because we serve the greatest. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, our journey in Acts has uh, been rather robust. It's taken a fair bit of time. I didn't even look to see how long we've been engaged, but it's been a while. And uh, at any rate, uh, Laramie, again, if you pull this, uh, our map back up of the missionary journeys. The other thing, uh, Laramie, if you're... I didn't get with him before, but there's also a map that we had or a description, a diagram of the Jerusalem city and the temple. We're going to need that a little bit later, so hopefully you have that somewhere in your, in your files there. But what we've done is uh, to, to just summarize, bringing us back into chapter 20, but one of Acts, which is, this is actually, the passage you read today is very transitional, very transitional. It's actually, from this point, you will see that Paul is no longer a free man. He is going to become a prisoner, which you've actually, you've seen this unfold. And it's not something that's new. In fact, this is what's interesting in all of this is Paul has seen this coming for a long period of time. And he's been warned, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go. In fact, uh, there's a prophecy that was actually fulfilled as we unloaded, uh, unfolded it right here, was the sink of Agabus in chapter 21, verse 11, had said that you will be bound. He actually took Paul's rope or his, or his belt and would have tied his hands and feet and said, you will be bound by the Jews and then delivered to the Gentiles. Literally, that's exactly what I've just read to you in chapter 21. But he is on his last leg of literally all of his journeys now are coming to a conclusion. They are in Caesarea and have been there for some period of time. There's a man there by the name of Philip, the evangelist, is how he's described. And they were staying at his home for some period of time. And now they've got the last leg to go to Jerusalem. They're about 65 miles from home base. Um, this has been um, a project, I use that word project, I don't know if that's the best, but as Paul has been going through the entire region that he's been ministering into, that he's been evangelizing, that he's been building churches, he's also sees the main component of bringing unity back to the entire church, which was started in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost. Now, he says in the previous chapters that he wanted initially to go to the Passover, which would be a Jewish feast, but that went by because he was his life was probably in danger he was going to leave from Achaia and go direct route to Jerusalem as, as a fact when he that coup or that uh, plot to kill him would have been taken out then he backtracked serviced and, and, and met with some more churches and now he is no longer at the Passover but Feast of Pentecost now there's a lot of assumptions that will play along that but it seems as such there's nothing in the contrary to the fact that he did not make it for the Feast of Pentecost it does seem as you look at the amount of people that were present in Jerusalem this was probably very much surrounding the time of the Feast of Pentecost which would have been, again it, it shows the fact that Paul is very in tune yet with still Jewish customs and traditions, okay? There's nothing wrong with Jewish customs or traditions as long as it's not seen as the source of salvation. The Judaizers of which Paul wrote the first epistle that you find in your, in your Bible as far as written in the New Testament from time frame or date was the letter to the Galatians, okay? He wrote it very early because the Judaizers had followed him and they are the people that literally felt there's no way that you could get to Jesus Christ. They said Jesus Christ was the answer. But if you were a Gentile, you had to become a Jew, and then you were able to find Jesus, or you could, you could take Jesus. 
very much out of character. So in other words, the key component was that to get salvation, you needed to be a Jew. Then you could become a Christian. You could not become a Christian without being a Jew would be another way of saying that. That's the Judaizer's message, which is another gospel. That's why the book of Galatians, or the, the epistle, I should say, the, the epistle to the Galatians was written to make sure that it was very differentiated. There's only one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, grace alone by faith alone in Christ alone. Okay? Now, the, what we're coming here, and there's, 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 there's some sense of potential dissension, because what it does is when the Jewish customs and traditions are out in front, which they, you, you can see that. We're in Jerusalem right now. We're not, we're not in Europe. We're not in Asia. We're in Jerusalem. He's traveled probably three or four days to go from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now, did you, there was a man named in there by the name of Manasseh. Okay? He's a Hellenistic Jew. When, I, when you hear the word Hellenistic, that would mean that he's Greek. He has been Greeked, if you will. He's a Greeked Jew. I mean, that's as simple as I can know how to make it. But the point of that matter is, let's say, let's say that, now who's traveling with Paul right now? What's he doing? Again, this is a culmination of him bringing offerings to unite the church across the entire known world to show that literally, not only is it the church about Jews, it's also about Gentiles that love the Jews enough to have given an offering to provide financial security, or at least a benefit, to those that are of Jewish descent. Which culminates, that's Paul's whole mission, is the fact of bringing the church together in unity. When the church is in unity, who is glorified? God. That's what it's all about. Now, um, one of the things, I think we'll do this um, pretty soon, but the main thing is, is to summarize why he's in Jerusalem. He's there to bring gifts. He's there to bring unity. He's bring, bringing to the elders of the church a description of, of his journeys and the things that have actually taken place in all of his worldwide endeavors. He's reporting back. Now, he hasn't done it for a while, but he's back. That sets us up of where we, where, where we started. If I say Paul, now we've been through quite a journey with him, haven't we? How would you describe Paul? I want you to give me some characteristics of Paul. There's, there's a couple in this passage that we've read today that aren't exactly, how's, what's the right word? It's not flagrant. It's not just right in your face, and yet it's really right there. It's like hidden in the wide open. Okay, so first of all, um, and maybe you're going to get the one that I hope you don't get. Have you ever written stuff on the, wall, on, on the board and you say, well, I hope they don't get that one, or I'm doomed, right? So I'm taking a bit of a chance here. But I want you to tell me about Paul. You're, you're describing Paul the Apostle to someone else that maybe doesn't know him. How would you describe him? Just, some, just one-worders. What, what do you say? What, what would you say about Paul? What is he? Who is he? Tenacious. Tenacious. And I'll get this wrong. Tenacious is, that's probably not right. Is it close? Karen? Not bad? Okay. That's a, that's a touchdown for Larry. <laughs> Tenacious got it the first shot, right? Yeah. What else? Faithful. Very faithful. Bold. That's actually one of the things that will be accentuated uh, as we come to the end of this. And by the way, we, we picked up, you talk about stopping in the midpoint. Did you see where I stopped? Ah, don't do that, right? But I did that. Because we're going to unfold. This whole session is going to take another chapter, honestly, to take this fullness of this, what would be the arrest and imprisonment. From this point on, I'll say it one more time. From this point on, the rest of Paul's life, which I'm just thinking out loud, that would probably be another uh, eight to ten years. And I don't hold me to that. But he, the rest of his life now will be imprisoned. 
He's no longer free. He's called, in fact, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20, an ambassador in bonds. Think of this for a moment. I mean, this is a bit of an aside. We're going to come back to this in just, just a second. Just hold on. Um, one of the things that he says, which is, is again, hidden in plain, plain sight, is he never says that he's a prisoner of the Romans. He doesn't say that he's a, pr a prisoner of the Philippians. Remember, he was in a Philippian jail. He does not say he's a prisoner of anyone except whom? Jesus Christ. Think of that for a second. So wherever he's at, wherever he's imprisoned, he sees himself as a prisoner or a servant of Jesus Christ, and that makes everything that happens right here okay because Jesus is right there with him. We'll, we'll play on that later. So what else would we say? Boldness? Committed. Committed. Okay, I also heard determined. And talk about those lining up, right? You guys must be in each other's heads. Committed? Determined? Servant? Focus, yeah. That, see, that's one of my favorite words, focus. And I'll tell you what, if anybody looks at Paul's life, you have to say, I mean, laser focused. There was, there was another one that somebody, I didn't catch it. Courage. Courage, okay, courage. Anything else? Excuse me? Teacher. Teacher. Good one, too, wasn't he? Wow. I wish for your sake that he was here and I wasn't, because I could just soak in the front row, just... Letting, letting, letting that stuff just drip on, right? Amazing. What else? I think I missed one from determined to focus. Somebody else said something. Servant. servant. That's it. Very good. Excellent. Servant. Fearless. I need another board, right? Fearless. And what was the other one? Available. Avail oh, I love that one. Isn't that great? Availability. Right? Pliable? Excuse me? Pliable? Bible? No, pliable. pliable. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. You can almost see it here. Uh, this is what I want you to think of. The verses I read, I don't know if you guys were in a bad situation this last week. That, my friends, is a bad situation. <laughs> and he knew it was coming. And he still went. That's what I have to appreciate. A lot of these things cover the fact that he is literally going to go wherever it is that he can have an opportunity to serve Jesus Christ. Okay? What else? See, I'm feeling pretty good right now because the word I'm looking for, you haven't got up there yet. <laughs> strong and tough to get beat like that. I'll tell you what, tough, right? You know, a lot of times they talk about the sense of Jesus Christ, you know, he was just sort of, you know, just kind of, that was the toughest man that I could possibly imagine. For him to be in the crucifixion setting and still say, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Paul is just like Jesus. You can see the similarities to him right here as they're leading him off and they say away with him. You know what that means? Kill him. Isn't that exactly what this is to Jesus? Okay, now I forgot to write down what I was supposed to. What was it? Uh, tough. tough. There you go. And I mean tough. <laughs> right? That brings in a T-U-F-F. That's like, that's a, different, that's a different level, isn't it? Tough. And he was. Just think of what he'd gone through. Anything else? Excuse me? Loving. Loving. Oh, overall, did you see it last week? The overarching sense of his courage. Okay, let, let's review for a minute from last week. 
If I told you to just have more courage, you would say, right. <laughs> but courage doesn't come from being exhorted to have more courage. It comes because of the fact that you're committed. And you're committed to the level that you're convinced. If you're really convinced that Jesus Christ is your Savior, and that God the Father is the Creator, and you are responsible to Him, guess what? That, that convincing turns into a commitment that's deep. And once you're deeply committed, courage just comes along with it. Okay? Now I forgot what I was going to write down. Loving. Loving. See, I'm a one-track guy, right? But you, ha you just have to get a sense of his love for the church. Why do, you, why do you think he's went through all of these hundreds of miles, all of this terrain, and he's literally bringing an offering back to finalize in Jerusalem? I still have to think when he's on that last leg, the last 65 miles, which would have taken three or four days if they walked. And it, did you see how, did you, now this was something we didn't get to last week, just thought of right now. We talked about some things that courage really does. Doesn't matter what the cost. It's not going to be diverted. It's very focused. You know what else it does? Is it motivates others. Do you know who went? Now, again, he knows that he is going to be, he doesn't, maybe he knows exactly what's going to happen. Did you notice not one word comes out of his mouth in all of this highly level of bad situation? And he kept going. He just kept going. But guess who went with him? Remember what they said in Caesarea? They've been saying, oh, Paul, don't you dare go to Jerusalem. You're going to be captured. You're going to be a prisoner. You're going to be probably killed. Guess who went with him from Caesarea? We read it in the first verse today. Other disciples from Caesarea. That guy is so infectious in the sense of his courage. He said, let's go with him. I want to be with this guy. Isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ was? Exactly. Uh, sorry, what was the, that, was, that was one I didn't put up here again. I get so off track. What was it? Convicted. convicted. He was very, very convinced, convicted. Well, I'm feeling pretty good right now. And by the way, isn't that robust? Wouldn't you want to be around people like that? That's Paul. You've done a really good job of describing him. But there's one up there that's actually even more important than all of these. In fact, there's one particular thing. And now I'm not even going to, if you get it right, I'm not even going to tell you. Because I'm just, okay. There's something that makes all of these things actually even more easily available or, what's the right word? Um, usable. That's, that's a word I want to use, is usable. Usability. That's a weird word, isn't it? But do you want to be used by God? And for just this second, I don't know, it's coming into my mind, is a usability index. There's indexes for everything. So if we were going to say a usability index, what would make you more usable on a scale for God? Spirit. Those are all right. Willingness. What did you say? Spirit-filled. Spirit Obedient. Obedient. Trusting. Trusting. That's the one I've been waiting for. Humility. 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 Humility is literally what makes usability and availability happen. Because if one, and if you think about it, I don't have room on my board, because I, I love what you guys have done here. This is crazy. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put humility at the very top, because that literally was what Paul was all about. 
Now, we're going to prove it today. There's, there's, there's succinct little snippets that are within our text that allows us to see even more clearly the humility of Paul. But wouldn't you agree, the more humble that you or Paul is, the more these become real. And if you will, a usability index is literally on fire at a high level, the more humble you are. Now, again, I've told you before, humility is one of the easiest things to lose. Because you could, someone could even say to you, thank you for your humility. And you're thinking about that. Well, it is nice to be humble. <laughs> Boom, gone. <laughs> Just like that. Out the window, right? Humility can evaporate in a millisecond. And that's what I really love about Paul. It never went away. It always was front and center without being lectured or spoken of being front and center. To him, the number one focus was him to be like Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, that's a, that's a chapter you should read maybe even this afternoon. It literally gives us a description starting in verse 5. The, I'll start in verse 1 because it even sets it up. The humility of Jesus Christ is totally amazing totally amazing. And you know what? That's the pattern that Paul used for his own life. Man, I want to be around people like that. And here's the deal. I'm going to say it again. The way you find people like that is that person is going to be humble. Humility drives everything. You know what the one thing that Satan has never, ever experienced? Humility. Pride at every level. What is behind lies? I mean, we're going to look at the Judaizers, which now there's two Jews. I need, let's differentiate that right now, just in case I miss it. Okay. There are two, two Jews that are listed, even though they're called Jews. There are the Jewish believers or the Christian Jews of which the council and the church of Jerusalem is very concerned about. These are people that are trusting Jesus Christ for salvation, but they're still steeped in tradition and customs. How would you, now let's think about that for a second. If you're a Jew and you've grown up in Jewish lifestyle, tell me the difference, is a Jew is a Jew a race or a religion? You're right. They're both. Right? Now, the other thing is, is the customs and, and, and traditions that literally these people are still adhering to, the law, for instance, and there's, that's not even necessarily tradition, but think, just think about the ceremonies. Think about the feasts. Think about the Mosaic law just in the sense of its combined essence. Those were all given by God. You see that? That's not as easily discernible. Now, what we have to the point of when the Feast of Pentecost happened and the church began, we're about 25 years into this thing. 25 years have taken place. It's still part of their lifestyle. There are nothing, there's nothing that Paul ever recorded that would diminish or discourage people from holding on to the Jewish traditions except if they make it part of salvation. That's what a Judaizer was. Very distinct, very straight on. In fact, the book of Galatians, I'm telling you what, you talk about take it, take, just go to war right away. It was boom. What's your source of salvation? Now, God actually allowed to take place in A.D. 70 that took all of these customs and all of these tr traditions away. We're at about probably 58, 57, 58 A.D. right now, right where, where we're at. So 70 A.D. is only a mere 10 plus years away. What happened in 70 A.D.? That temple is gone. There's a whole lot of Jews that were massacred. In fact, it's thought to be in excess of a million. 
there's nothing left. There's 900 villages and cities of, of, of Israel that are just decimated. Anything there, so now, you know, if you were going to say a book, what book should the Jews really read to see the fact that no longer is the Holy of Holies a separate place? I mean, it should have been obvious that Jesus Christ's crucifixion, right? Three o'clock in the afternoon, the Passover lamb is offered. Jesus Christ dies, says it's finished. And that two-foot-thick wall or veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, it is torn from top to bottom, opens it up. And I'm and imagine with those poor priests that aren't high priests, I can't look at that. I'm not supposed to look at that, right? Because I'm dead. And you know what? All of a sudden, they weren't dead because Jesus Christ made the difference. That was the beginning. But if there was a book that literally, I'm telling you, if, if, if the Jews would read it and go back to the Old Testament to gather it up, it would book the, be the book of Hebrews. Not an easy book, but it's a book that really talks about the position that Jesus Christ places us in. Guess when the book of Hebrews would have been written? 68 A.D. They had two full years to figure it out. 70 A.D., there is no temple. Do you know that's the last sacrificial system there's ever been was in A.D. 70. That's why as we're approaching actually to what I would call, we're living in the last days. In fact, when Jesus Christ was crucified, that began the last leg because he said it's finished and it's the end of the beginning. But the Jewish population, the ones, the Judaizers, those that don't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, are still wanting to revert back to the sacrificial system which ceased on A.D. 70 at Titus, the Roman emperor that destroyed it. That is something that I still feel that the beginning of the tribulation, which again, we're in a parenthesis. The church age is in a parenthesis. After Jesus Christ died, the church began at the Feast of Pentecost. That's what the book of Acts is all about. Now, Jews can still come. He went to the synagogues as, much time, as often as he could, joining them together into one body called the church. But we're in a parenthesis. It will end when we meet Jesus in the air. Not the second coming, Literally meet Jesus in the air. That's called the rapture. It's a coming event. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 speaks of it. That ends the parenthesis. Then guess what? God is going to have the 70th week of Daniel, which is spoken of in Daniel. Think of that. Daniel writing about stuff that is not even history to us. It's still in the future. And Daniel wrote it hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But he will bring in the last leg of joining the Jews, the real Jews, to him, and it'll take seven years of tribulation. And what begins with that is the fact they want to rebuild their temple. I don't know if you know this or not, but they've gathered all kinds of supplies that are necessary because they want to get back to the sacrificial system. They want to meet their God. They don't know Jesus. And in seven years, at the end of the tribulation period, in, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it tells us that they will see him who they pierced for who he is. They will finally see their Messiah as who he is. The blatancy of literally, it just almost makes me get ill inside, is just as they tried to kill Paul, did you see what they did? They, were, they had him inside the temple, and they quickly escorted him out to beat him outside the temple. They closed the doors so they wouldn't mess up their worship, so they could kill God's appointed and anointed. Exactly what they did to Jesus Christ. They had to hurry up and get him off of the cross so they wouldn't mess up their Right? That's religion at its finest. You leave the good stuff out. You leave the real stuff out. I went down a bunny trail. I know I did. I'm trying to get myself back now. Maybe let's go 
And let's just start to see, because the message today is, is really underlining, is it's even humility, the best kind is the one that is kind of hidden, doesn't talk about it. Paul never speaks of it. Paul never speaks of it, which makes it even more real. Let's go back to our text, and let's begin back in chapter 21. And again, verse 15, it says, after those days, what days? The days that they were in Caesarea, it's time to go on. He said in verse 15, 14, he would not be persuaded. In other words, Paul is not going to be dissuaded. He's going to go to Jerusalem because he knew, knows that it's for the best of the church to give, it, to give their gifts of offerings and then also the unity and to speak with the council, the, church, the, the council at Jerusalem and the church itself. It says, after those days, we took up our carriages. Now, that's, that's a word for us that we would think there's something with wheels on it, but it actually is just luggage or baggage. He would have gathered up their, their luggage, their baggage, and they're going to be going to Jerusalem. It says that they went with a certain of the disciples of Caesarea. I have that underlined because that's the guys that said you shouldn't go because you're going to be imprisoned, you're going to be arrested, you may even be killed unless that, that tenacity, that sense of in, intensity and infectiousness of courage, actually, they're following him along. And they go with one Manassan of Cyprus, an old disciple, which means he probably was even saved when, the, when Pentecost, many years back, when the church began, he might have been there. But that's where they're going to lodge. And let's talk about that for a second. Okay. So Paul is traveling with who? Let's talk, about his, let's talk about his company. He actually has representatives from a numbers of these churches that are, that are probably, I think, are carrying the offerings from their church to go back to Jerusalem. Okay? It's a pretty Gentile-y group. Okay? Now, you're going to Jerusalem. Hmm. Where are you going to stay? The Gentile Super Six? You're in Jerusalem. Now, let's say that there's a Jewish believing family. Martha, honey, I've heard that Paul is coming. Should we put them up? Oh, John, no. What would the neighbors say? Right? <laughs> Did you see that word? They were, he, they, after, this is, we're jumping ahead, but it still goes credence to the statement. They had been informed. That word is the same as if any one of you went to catechism, that's not just being told, that's being drilled, right? And they were drilled or catechized that Paul was bad. He had been telling all kinds of things against Jewish customs. Now, if you as a Jewish believer had Gentiles in your home in Jerusalem, you get the picture now, don't you? That's uncomfortable. But Manasseh, who is a Hellenized, a Greek Jew, and a believer, yeah, come on in. It doesn't matter to me, right? That's where they're staying. That's where they're staying. They're staying right there with, with Manasseh. Verse 17, when they were come to Jerusalem, the brethren, that would be the, the, the people of the church, the true church of Jerusalem, received us gladly. Now, I personally would like to have had a couple more verses, maybe, maybe a chapter talking about receiving the gifts from all of the various Gentile churches and all of that impacted and all of the, you know, wouldn't you want a little more robust? Luke just said, they received them gladly. Oh, yeah, I bet, right? But that's it. But then it goes on to say the next day, 
The next day following, verse 18, Paul went in with us unto James. James would be the leader or the spokesman of the church, of the elders, shall we say, and all the elders were present. Just a side note, this is interesting to see the transition from in chapter 2 of Acts, the Feast of Pentecost, the beginning of the church, who was in charge? Who was the, the spiritual leadership? Apostles, right? All of the apostles. Did you notice it's just elders now? So where are the apostles? Are they dead? Not all of them. Now, there is one that's James, the brother of John, was beheaded, right? But the rest of the apostles, where were they at? Where are they at? They're around the rest of the world. They're evangelizing. They're doing their own mission. Can you imagine? You could have like 10 books of Acts, right? We've just had the snippets to see Peter as an apostle for a while, and then he, he vanishes out there. And then Paul, who is the last apostle to be called by Jesus Christ. But just think, all of those other apostles had their own books, right? Pretty cool. But the elders, which is exactly how the church is derived. And today, uh, a church is, is led, spiritually led, by the elders of the church. Now, again, I want, I, I'm saying that because I want to see Paul's reaction to this. Because if you would take the elders of the Jerusalem church, how many is there? That's a good question. I, the pastors that are a lot smarter than I, my pay grade's a lot less. They would say probably at least 70, which would fit the Sanhedrin, but probably more of 100 or 100 plus. Wow. But think of the, think of the membership of the church. Uh, be careful with the word membership. Those that are in the church that started at Pentecost. Within just a few weeks after the beginning, there were already close to 10,000. You're probably talking 20, 30, 40,000 Christian Jews that are living in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the tension going on? We talk about racism in the United States. We don't even have a clue. We have the same Jews that one believe Jesus is an apostate, and we have a Jew that thinks he's a savior, and you're living in the same city. That's a different perspective. But at any rate, has Paul got more, quote, authority than the elders of the Jerusalem church? You're, oh, you are so clever. No one's responding. You're just saying, where is he going with that? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you either. <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, if you were going to do that, if you're going to check it out, an apostle would, in fact, have a higher level of authority because that's literally how the church was founded. But that baton is being passed. But did you notice? Oh, we're early on that. Let's not take that notice. Let's keep moving. We'll come back to it. The day following, Paul went in with us unto James. That would be the half-brother of Jesus. Did you guys know that? He's the one that wrote the book of James. This is the guy that didn't believe Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. I mean, you, 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 you grew up in the same home as Jesus, which would be complicated. Uh, I'm thinking of any family that would have a number of children, and Jesus would be the one that didn't do anything wrong ever. And mom took his side every time because she knew he was flawless, right? How does that go for siblings? Uh-huh. Well, of course Jesus didn't do it. <laughs> right? right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's what you do. Can you imagine the animosity growing up? And you can find it. I can go to those verses. We're not going to do it right now. There was a definite animosity from fellow siblings, and careful, half-siblings, to Jesus Christ. Until... If you read the resurrection story, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus appeared to James. Now, I'm going to tell you what, because mom came home. James might not have been at the crucifixion, but mom was. Mary was right there to the end, which I can't imagine mothers 
grandmothers, I have no idea the pain and anguish that Mary, the mother of Jesus, must have felt on the day that he is, and they're not a high cross. His feet would have probably been right here, and she is right at the foot of the cross watching her son in more agony and excruciating pain than you should even know about. And she knows when he said it's finished, he was dead in a grave. I can't imagine her trudging home and telling the family the worst. And then, a matter of days, and Jesus, that brother that I didn't believe in, speaking from James' perspective, appears to me in a resurrected form. I think the lights went on. In fact, they not only went on, this same James became the leader, the spokesman, of a massive church in Jerusalem. That's the same James. Now, Let's see, what, let's see what Paul is going to tell the church and the elders. This is a gathering the day after when he had saluted them, verse 19. He declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Let's stop there for a moment. Lots of things in that verse that really aren't even stated. Let me say it another way. The next day, Paul and the group that he was with, they gathered because it, it says we, and he began to say particularly the things that he had done. You missed it. Did you see how easy it was to miss it? Let me say it again. That's right. That's right. Paul did not say, now I want to show you, I want to tell you about all the stuff I did. Shake your head no. What did he do? Let's read it again. It says... When he had saluted them, he declared particularly. Now, let, let's stop there even for a moment. Now, you may have had these, these missionary moments or these church uh, summaries that, well, in the year 2023, we had 42 trust Christ. We had 62 that were rededicated. We had the... <sighs> right? What Paul did is he personally, particularly, told episodes of real people and what happened along that line. I, I just envisioned Paul as all of the things that you've described for me. This didn't happen in 10 minutes. This was an extended version. But he didn't talk about what he did. You see the difference? Let's read it. This is humility on steroids. When he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. All of the things that you've described Paul as, yeah, he was there, but it was God that did the work. Now, that's humility. That's what it looks like. Now, how can you tell that that truly was, in fact, humility is who gets the credit? If, there's some, if you're having trouble with having God get the glory, now, that's, you'll never say that out loud, right? Oh, to God be the glory. Great things he has done. But in your heart of hearts, you know how easy it is to get there. Well, I wouldn't mind a little bit of glory there, right? It'd be okay, you know, because I really put my time in and I did my stuff and it was, you know, I was there, and, you know, right? But look at this. Let's watch how they responded. And this was, I'm sure, very lengthy. When they had heard it, they glorified Paul. They said, well, let's have a Paul day. Let's have a Paul reward. Let's go ahead and give him a plaque on the wall because he should have it in his office that he's never had. Do you get it? None of that took place. They didn't see Paul. They didn't even notice he was there except he's orating. He's speaking for God and what happened all across the rest of the world. And guess who got the glory? God did. 
You want to check how humility works? That's how it works. Who gets the glory? Isn't that good? Paul is just living humility. And he doesn't even say it. That word is not even mentioned there. That's what's really cool about it. Because as soon as you mention the word humility, zip, out the door it goes. So he shows his humility literally by doing God's work. When they had heard it, they glorified God and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands... Uh-oh, look, at, look what we got now. Have you ever had a huge blessing? But there's something underlying. There's a problem. There's a concern. There's something digging at you. In fact, if, you have, if you're out of money and there's about half the month left, there's that nagging, right? There's always a problem. There's always something. Well, if you were James and the elders of this church, there is something big time. And they're going to unfold it. As, as heightened as Paul would have laid out for them what was happening in the Gentile world, of which Jerusalem church would have been the beginning, the beginning of it all, oh, there's this little, actually, it's a really, actually, Paul, it's a monster. It's like the gorilla in the room right now. Let's talk about it. So let's see what they say. In fact, they even say it. They say, thou seest, brother. In other words, you've noticed You've seen probably 20, 30, 40,000 of these Jewish believers. You see them. They're out there as you came into town. Which they are they which believe. They are true believers, and they are all zealous of the law. We've been speaking about that through our session already today. Being zealous for the law as long as it's not that your belief in salvation is in the law, the law becoming just part of your lifestyle. I mean, there's a lot of people that even migrated to the United States of America they are still holding on to their customs of where they came from in their homeland, Scandinavians, Germans, you, you name it. And as long as it has nothing to do with salvation and that it's not evil or against God, that's what Romans chapter 4, oh, did you know when he wrote Romans? That's Paul speaking of. Uh, Romans chapter, all the things he's going to be, that he's actually going to be blamed for, he's already addressed just previously as he would have been in Corinth on his way back See, that's an interesting thing. If he would have left and come from Corinth and, and Achaia, went directly to Jerusalem, you know what wouldn't have happened? Probably wouldn't have wrote the book of Romans. <gasps> I can't imagine not having the book of Romans in my Bible. That's a go-to book. Somebody that doesn't know Jesus Christ, I mean, I'm in Romans all over, right? It's, it's all over. The Romans road is a lot of it's been used to, to being said. But the Romans book, actually, chapters 14, 15, and 16 are about the freedoms, the liberty that we have in Christ. And he speaks about the fact that those that are still have customs, they have traditions. They don't know that they don't have to have that. But who cares? Jesus is the reason that they're saved. That's the same for us today. There, every single one of you has been raised differently, right? But there's only one way. There is only one way. That's what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. I am, not I am part of the way. I am a way. I, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Now, that's really exclusive. I didn't say it. It's exclusive because Jesus said it. He died for us, and he can say it. That's, I, I make no excuses or apologies. That's exactly what was said. Now, there's no other way to get to Jesus, but if you want to hold a special day or a ceremony or you have, in this case, guess who even went to the Feast of Pentecost? Paul did. You see my point? It's nothing wrong with traditions as long as it doesn't become the focus of how one is saved. 
They're zealous for the law. So you have, a, you have believers, I don't, again, I'm, I'm guessing 20, 30, 40,000 people that have trusted Christ as Savior and they still love the law. Judaism. In its right place, not Judaizers, these are the ones that will rise up because now what the church is, their job is to do this. Paul, there's some things that have been said about you. There's things that have been enforced, informed. They've been catechized. They've been absolutely just drilled into these people of what you, what you are supposed to be. And you know, what, you know what that sounds like? You know what that sounds like right now with Paul being in town? A church split that you would not be able to believe. Right? I can't imagine how messy that town would be. And so the church, the church elders are saying with... Paul, love what you're doing in the Gentile world. Love it. It's just fabulous. God be glorified. We've got a problem here at home, potentially, because you're now in town. And this is what's being said. You get it? Are you there? This sounds tense. By the way, by the way God is good with tense. Here we go. It says that they are informed. These same zealous, not jealous, zealous believing Jews, they are informed, catechized, and drilled of thee that thou teachest all the Jews, which are among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. Ooh, it's pretty heavy. Now, for us, not as big a deal. Jesus is the answer, right? For a Jew, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. Now, is it right? No. In fact, if we went back to, you might just take some notes now because we're going to cruise. In Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3 talks about what Paul did to a certain young man called Timothy who was a Jew. He had him circumcised so he actually would have more influence, more leverage amongst the Jews in which he was ministering. So did Paul, was he against circumcision? No. Right there it is. It's not there. Not there at all. Then the customs. Remember back in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, it says that Paul actually took a vow. Now, why would you do that if you believed that the customs were irrelevant to him, right? Again, it's to him. These aren't for Gentiles. We'll find that in just a second. This isn't for anybody else, but if you feel that that is in your conscience, there's actually Jews today that are being saved by Jesus Christ, that for them to be able to pray to God, they have a certain format or a, a look. There's a word for it. I can't think of it right now. And they don't think they're praying to God unless they're in that. Well, it's ridiculous, but for them, if that's what it means, knock yourself out. That's great. This is what this is about. But these are all lies. Have you noticed Satan's really good at lying? Really good at it. And the Judaizers, those Jews without Jesus Christ, are right there with their leader. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus himself said, You are of your father the devil, who the only thing he can do is lie. When you open the pages of Genesis chapter 3, is the first time you see Satan present. You know what he's doing? He's lying. Right out of the box. He lies, he lies. You know, I didn't see this until the last couple of years as I'm studying. Might have even been through Acts, the sense of this. No, in even the Gospels. I remember as, even as a youngster, I would say, now, wait, there would be a, a demon of which Jesus would cast the demon out. But before he did, the demon would say, thou art the Christ. And I'm thinking, bingo, even the demons know. Well, what did he say? He silenced them, right? He, every place that a demon spoke, even though it was true, he silenced them. I'm like, what's wrong with that? And then remember that little girl that was demon-possessed? And she said every day following Paul, these are servants of the Most High God. They are the way of salvation. And finally he said, stop and cast the demon out. God will not use liars to present the truth. 
He doesn't need Satan to lie. Or Satan who does lie to tell the truth because you know what happens? He's only going to use the truth to be expedient for him to get himself to another level, to get inside. In this case, how many churches have been filtrated by necessarily a beginning truth that now the lies have split it up? That's how it works. That Satan loves it. Satan is more effective not in persecution, in infiltration. Infiltration. That's what he's the best at because he can get right inside, mole his way in, and then start to cause dissension and false teaching from within. That's how he works. So what are we going to do? Paul, we've got a problem. There's people that are saying things about you. In verse 22, it says, what is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. In other words, this thing is about to explode. They know. They'll find out you're in town. And what are we going to do? They've got a plan. Do do therefore this that we say to thee. This is a command as such from the elders. We have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, and that they may shave their heads, and all we know of those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. So we got a plan. We got four guys that are involved in Nazarite vow. They have a week left. And by the way, if Paul would have come from Gentile territory, literally be ceremonially clean if you're in Jerusalem, he would have a week long sense of. Uh, a ceremonial cleansing, if you will. So they said this would fit nicely into this whole thing, but there's one more thing. Not only because, can you imagine this? Oh, yeah, well, he was just along with his four guys because it looked convenient. He's just trying to fit in. There's one other catch. They said you need to pay for the four guys' vows and their sacrifices. Tent makers don't have a lot of dough. I'm just going to go with that. Have you noticed? Did Paul argue? Did he say, that's a stupid idea? Let's do it this way, because I'm an apostle. You're just elders. I'm above you. Listen to me. Not one word. Let's let God work this out. Is it a problem? Yeah, I know it's a problem. Okay, that's fine. You guys must have prayed about it. Let's go on. So he's going to pay for the four guys. He's going to go ahead and ceremony. Again, you, you catch him what he's doing. He had his own Nazarite vow back in Acts chapter 18. You can see customs are part of his lifestyle. I mean, if you grow up as a Pharisee, it's just part of who you are. Let's see how it works out. Now, they're careful to say, this is James, I'm sure, speaking as spokesman, verse 25, as touching the Gentiles, in other words, let's talk about them for a second, which believe, again, these are all believers, we have written and concluded. We've said this before, and we observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from the strangled, and from fornication, sexual immorality. Those four things have been talked about earlier in the book of Acts. These are particularly four things that the Jewish community would be very offended by if it hasn't, plus the fact those are especially fornication. That's an absolute wrong-o for any Christian, anywhere, no matter what. But we're not asking the, the Gentiles to adhere to any of this. No, no, we're, hear us carefully, Paul. We're not trying to formalized Jewry in the Gentiles. Christianity, no, 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 no. We want them to have everything we talked about with the exception of those four things need to be present. But for the Jews' sake, for the Jewish believers, we want you to do that. And he says, he basically says okay because he does it. Here we go. 
Then Paul took them in. No, no arguments, no discussion. And the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. He's going to pay for that. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia... Oh, stop for a second. Isn't this interesting? Laramie, could you find that temple, the, the diagram of the temple? Yeah, just the yeah. Let me see what you have. That will that will work. That will work perfectly. Thank you. Perfect. So now, why would the Jews of Asia? Now, when we're saying Jews, which Jews? The Jews that don't believe Jesus Christ is the Savior. These are the non-Christian Jews. Now, where's Asia? Now, see my map's gone, but that's okay. Asia would be that place, Asia Minor, where Ephesus. Thessalonia, all of those, you with me? Stick in your mind, it's there, okay? It says that the Jews from Asia, aren't we in Jerusalem? What are we doing in Jerusalem? Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Pentecost. Now, the other thing that we always think of it from a Christian standpoint is the fact that the Feast of Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover to us, which means it's 50 days after the death of Jesus Christ. Right? That's, that's where we're at. But if you're a Jew, a non-believing, when I'm saying non-believing, a non-believing Jesus Jew, then you would see the Pentecost became known for 50 days after leaving the Exodus from Israel. I'm sorry, from Egypt. 50 days later, we were given the law, the Torah. So think of this now. This festival, this ceremony that of which they're gathered by is literally a celebration of the law. Now you're starting to get it. And here's Paul, who's seen as anti-law, anti-Moses, is in the middle of a feast of which we're celebrating the Torah, which was given by Moses 50 days after we left the land of Egypt. That's how they saw the Feast of Pentecost. Whoa, you talk about dynamite and throwing a match on top of it. So Paul, he would then going into the temple... And he is, this inner part right in here is where the Jews themselves, the Jewish men would actually congregate right in here, okay? That's no-no land if you're a Gentile. See the Gentiles' courtyard? You don't get to go in here. In fact, there's actually on some of those posts going around here, there is signs which I, I, I read it, but I can't verbatim, I can't give it to you, but paraphrased, it was like, be it known, it's in two different languages. It's in Greek and Aramaic, which Aramaic is actually the Hebrew language. We'll talk about that as we get on. But in Aramaic and in Greek, it was act, or, I'm sorry, it was in Latin and Greek because Aramaic would have been spoken. They actually literally would have been told, if you go past this barrier right here, you have no one to blame you but yourself for the ensuing death that will take place. Did you get that? The Romans actually let that happen. Because they knew, the, they knew how sincere and how powerful the, the Jewish religion was. There were some things they let them have. So right here is where Paul could go. He's a Jew, right? Now, the people from Asia. Now, why do I think, I didn't even tell you that, I believe that it's actually the Jews from Ephesus. The longest place that Paul was on any of his journeys was in Ephesus for three years. Those Jews that hated him probably knew him pretty well. They were there for the Feast of Pentecost. As they would have saw this Paul in Jerusalem, there he is. 
But look at what else. We know something else. Let's keep going. Let's keep reading. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. And we'll read this and we'll come right back. Crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law. And this place and further brought Greeks also in the temple and hath polluted this holy place. Now watch verse 29. For they, the same ones, Jews from Asia, had seen before with him in the city, Jerusalem, Trophimus and Ephesians. How would anybody from Jerusalem know Trophimus from Ephesus? These Jews from Asia are Jews from Ephesus. See, I'm pointing back to my map, but in your mind it's there, right? They were the Jews from Ephesus that really, literally wanted to run not just Paul out of town. They wanted to kill him. You read the story in Acts previously. And now their chance has come. They saw him with Trophimus, which is an Ephesian Gentile, and they surmised, assumed that he had taken him inside that temple. That's what they're accusing him of, and he should be killed. Guess who gets to be killed if you go inside the temple, the very innermost sanctum? Uh, you are killed, not Paul. Trophimus would be dead. You see, it's not, it's not even legitimate. Their opportunity has come, and I'm telling you, how many people would be in the city of Jerusalem during the Feast of Pe Pentecost? It's thought probably two million. Have you seen a riot? Not like this, you haven't. <laughs> wow. They incite the whole place. Because let's watch what they said in verse 28. This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Uh, that seems a little far-fetched. And further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. All of those fabulous lies. But it caught, verse 30, all the city was moved. The people ran together. They took Paul, drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. This would have been the door they shut. They would have drug him out of this temple and shut the door so they could keep worshiping. They'll just kill him right out here. That's okay. <laughs> How are you doing, guys? Is this crazy or What? This is Satan at work right in the middle of Jewish tradition. Keep going. And as they went about to kill him, whoa, what? And as they went about to kill him, you're kidding me. No, as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band. Who's this guy? That all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now, what you need to know is, Right there in that Antonio fortress, guess what? You can look over into what's happening inside the temple for good reason. The last thing a Roman commander, in this case, would want is civil unrest. And when's the highest level of civil unrest? During a large festival or feast or ceremony, right? That's, so look at that. that. That's not by accident. They built that so they could watch what's going on inside the temple. And all of a sudden, if you can imagine the uproar of a large riot. Now, what do we know from previous engagements with, with riots? There's two things that stick out. One, anger. Two, confusion. That sounds logical to me. Let's get involved in one of those. That's why I even look around our country. Riots, anger, confusion. Who knows? Nobody knows anything except they're mad and they're confused about it. Let's do more of that. So now they're watching here from this, and this, by the way, this, this commander, this captain, you'll find him, let's just take, if your Bibles turn to chapter 23, 
And he's actually going to write a letter that we're jumping ahead into the mission here. But he wrote a letter to Felix, and he says this, Claudius Lysias, under the most excellent governor Felix. So we know his name. You have to go forward to find it, but his name is Claudius Lysias. And he's the commander of a thousand men. That word is actually a word that we get a thousand from. It's a Roman word. So we know that he's got a thousand guys that are ready for riot. They have, they are ready for riots. And I'm saying within minutes, maybe even not very minutes, because how long would Paul last being literally kicked and beat and hit? Not very long. They come down and immediately are there in that, they're in the courtyard. They're taking, they're taking control of the situation. He immediately took the soldiers and centurions. Now, a centurion is what? That's a leader of a hundred, right? He's a leader of a thousand. This is the main guy, uh, Mr. Lysias, and ran down among them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. I bet they did. Then the chief captain came near and took him, commanded him to be bound with two chains, and demanded who he was and what he had done. Now, this is where the mob is going to be able to tell exactly what's taking place. And some cried one thing, some another. Among the multitude, and when they, he could not know the certainty of the tumult, he commanded him to be carried in the cat. As usual, the mob knows nothing. They're just there to incite. Uh, think of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. On a Monday, they crowned him as king as he went, went, went through the streets of Jerusalem. They laid down their garments and Hosanna to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus, the Messiah. And on Friday, they had him on a cross. How did they do that? The same way. Someone instigated a mob, a riot, and pretty soon they are angry and they have no reason why. They're confused. Same deal. Kill him. Kill him. Crucify him. So our commander, our captain, has him chained. He, ha he already thinks he knows who he is. When he came upon the stairs, verse 35, and this is exactly what happened, there's a stairway that you would have climbed up to get up to this level, okay? You would actually overlook the whole courtyard, the Gentile courtyard. They went up the steps, and he was born of the soldiers for the In other words, these soldiers are literally carrying Paul over their heads for the violence of the people trying to kill him. What in the world? The multitude of the people followed after, crying away with him. That means kill him. And as Paul was being led to the castle, up to the fort, and to the Antonio fortress, he said unto the chief captain, may I speak unto thee? This is the first word you hear Paul say. Did you notice that? He's even humble in the sense of all of this beating. And, you know, and I, I don't know how much of this would have been relayed to him in a dream or in a, this prophecy that would have... But he, he knew this was coming. Did he know exactly? I don't know that. But it seems like he's submissive in the sense of... Persecution. He's submissive to the elders of the church, and he's obviously submissive to God the Father for everything that he'd done through him. That is all under humility. Not one time is that word used in this passage, and yet it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Now, how would you address the Roman captain of the guard? What would you say? What would you, how would you address him? Uh, the language you use would be very important. Most of those Jews there would have, speak, would have spoken Aramaic. That was the language. Of, that's how Jesus spoke. He didn't speak in Hebrew. He spoke the Hebrew's tongue, which would have been Aramaic. That's how everybody talked. But did you see how he addressed the captain? In Greek. 
Now that rolled this guy on his side. What? How do you know Greek? There was something that happened immediately because if you spoke Greek, that means that you were educated. He already had him plot point. He thought he was just a rabble rouser. He was just this Egyptian that literally a few years before had 4,000 men around him that were, became assassins. But we'll keep going. He says, Canst thou speak Greek? Art thou not that Egyptian which before these days made us an uproar and led us out in the wilderness? 4,000 men that were murderers? Now, let me stop for a moment. I have to fill in some blanks there. There was an Egyptian guy that literally would have, he hated Jews, anti-Semitic to the max. And he had 4,000, if you will, disciples or those that followed him around. And they were beaten by the Romans. There was like 600 of them that were killed and the rest of them got away. But do you know how they did business? During feasts, they would infiltrate the crowd. And when you can, you can infiltrate a crowd that's one to two million people. And they would, they would reach out and assassinate or kill someone and they just slip away into the crowd. And this Roman captain thought they'd caught one of these assassins or maybe even the real guy, the guy that's behind it. That's what's behind all of this. And they finally think they've caught the guy. And now the guy speaks in Greek. What? That's not him, right? All of a sudden, the two chains he's got on him, this doesn't make any sense. So Paul speaks to him in Greek, and then he says, no, Paul says, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, or no small place. And I beseech you, suffer me, allow me to speak to the people. Now, it's interesting how Paul, whoever he's in company of, he always leaves himself an ace. He always leaves him something, something that he will use later. What do I mean? Do you know what he didn't tell this guy right here? Now, this is a Roman captain. Do you know what he didn't tell him? That he was a Roman citizen. That would have changed it even more. He told him only what he needed to know because he's going to pull the Roman card out, out of his billfold, when he needs it, which isn't very far in the future. Oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Oh, that changes a few things. But he, all he wants from this guy is to be able to speak to the people. Unbelievable. And then I'm going to leave you hanging until next week. Did you notice this? When he had given him license, he said, yeah, go ahead. Because I'm thinking he's trying to figure out who this guy is. If you're a Jew, why are they so mad at you? He gives him license. He stood on the stairs because he, see, he's now safe, and it's giving him a platform. It's giving him an opportunity to speak to all of these people that want him dead. Now he's going to talk to them. <laughs> is this not Paul? I think it's somewhere under tenacious, faithful, bold, right? All of those things. You know why? Because he'd been humble. That's how he got there. It says he beckoned with his hand, and there was a great silence. That whole uproar stopped, which I believe God was fully and completely in control. And then it says he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying. The Hebrew tongue would have been Aramaic, which they would be ready to listen to. Now, if he'd have spoke to Greek and the people, they wouldn't have stopped anything. But he spoke in what they knew for everyday language. Now, he's going to unfold. We're going to see this next week. He's unpacking for them an apology. Now, when I say apology, what does it usually mean? If I apologize to somebody, it's like I'm... I'm sorry, okay? Now, think, of, think with me for a moment. And by the way, that's true of today's use of the language, okay? But what if I say apologetics? That's defending your position. You said if somebody is, is apologetically speaking about God as a creator or other apologetics of whatever it is within the scripture. What is that? That's a defense. So his apology here is a defense of what he's up to. 
He's going to defend himself against the claims that have been made against him. He's about to unpack everything necessary for them to see what he's been all about. And I'm going to tell you something, it's a run. Now, in all of the time that he's in prison, which is the first time, he has six defenses, six apologetic speeches or sermons. This is the first one. Now, let's take a step back. Obviously, you can see that humility is the focus of this. Wasn't it sneaky, though? He was in plain sight. And yet, well, not one time was the word mentioned. That's the sweetest thing about humility. The sweetest thing about humility is when you don't even know you have it. It's not that you think less of yourself. It's not your thinking of yourself at all. That's literally the design of humility. Is that not what Paul was all about here? You can't miss the boldness either. I'm going to tell you what. At this point, when that guy asked, who are you? I said, I'm, I'm Paul. I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus. Get me out of here. <laughs> Get me out of here. Not Paul. Uh, do you mind if I talk to these people? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Here's the deal. Have you ever been in a bad situation? How do you get a positive response or a positive approach to a bad situation? Make sure you humble yourself, absolutely. That's the key because you won't be usable until the higher index for, for uh, humbleness is there. The usability index parallels and follows the same as your humility. But the situation he found himself in, this is key. This is what a lot of times I miss in my own life, is when things don't go well, if they're wrong, and that's from my perspective. That's just in my little head, okay? I'm not God. But when I can say that, you know what, I'm here for this situation because God has allowed it to happen. Just like Job, when everything disappears, he said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, and blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, this circumstance right here, right now that I'm in, as bad as it is, God's in it. And when you do that first, then what happens is you're not asking the why question. You're asking, Lord God, what do you want me to do right now? What is the opportunity that I'm missing? What is it that you want me to do in this situation that looks pretty, dread, pretty dreadful? That, my friends, is literally what humility brings to the table. When you're okay where you're at, because you know God is bigger, he's stronger. Romans chapter 8, which we read last week, if God is for us, who can be against us? And with that, there's a door, doors will open. Doors will open for an opportunity to be, I can't imagine, what do you think if Paul said that morning? Well, you know, guys, I think what's going to happen, I'm going to go to the temple, I'm going to fin we're just really close to finishing these vows, I'm going to pay for these four guys, and then what's going to happen is I'm going to speak to all of the non-believing Jews. Right. Not a chance. But guess what? That's exactly what happened. And it was a bad situation that placed him there. Isn't that true? Take the bad situations in your life. And again, I'm putting quotes around bad. You know what? Good can come out of it. Good can and will come out of it. Because when you're more humble, when you're more dependent, when you're more focused on trusting God, all of a sudden that bad situation turns into an opportunity for God to be glorified. And that, my friends, is what that chapter is all about thus far. We stopped in a very weird point. You're saying, don't stop. What? You've got to come back next week. Let's find out what he said. Let's find out what he said. Now, it's interesting. Did he make an impression on the believing Jews? I probably did. I think he really did. But the Judaizers, the ones that are unbelieving, I don't think it would have mattered what he would have done. They're there because where did these guys come from? They came from 
I believe Ephesus, for the reasons that I laid out for you. They're there to take him out. They are tools and instruments of Satan. And no matter what, even though we, oh, man, God, what are you doing? Man? Come on. I mean, this is rough. I'm, I came to Jerusalem. I brought, I brought offerings. And the church is, I'm, I'm doing everything right, and that's how I'm treated. See, that's what would happen if we're not humble, because we deserve better. Okay? And then we start asking the why question. Remember with Job, you go all through the book of Job, and Job finally, after being around his friends long enough, says, yeah, why is this happening? And he starts asking the why question. Do you know which question God doesn't answer? The why question. He says, I want you to know that I'm God. Where were you at in creation? Where were you when this happened? Where and finally, Job says, you and you alone are God. Blessed be the name of God. Now, that's getting a lesson here in humility, isn't it? That is cool, how humility ruled this man's life. Our question is, for ourselves, will we let it rule us? Will we take a bad situation and look for an opportunity for God to be glorified? That's our goal. That's my goal. That's my goal for you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the day. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your care. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for him looking so much like Jesus Christ. And obviously, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for him being able to declare to the world that he is our high priest, our savior. He's the one that paid it all. He's the one that, you, that Father, you spoke of in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Before the world began, you chose us in him. He alone is the savior. Father, we would ask that in these, these moments... Just concluding this session of seeing the importance of Paul's trust in you and his humility, his usableness was unparalleled. Father, may, may we have just the same desire to be used of God. Father, we're here because you've allowed it. The situations that we find ourselves in, Father, is because it's been allowed. Now, Father, what do you want us to do in that situation? Those are questions that we'll have to ask ourselves personally. But, Father, as we rely on you, as we taste of your goodness of salvation, as we taste, Father, of the greatness of all of your character, your powerfulness, your immutability, Father, all of that makes us even more awestruck by how great you are. Take us and use us, Father. Do what you need to do to increase and to improve who we are. May we look more like Jesus a week from now than we do today. That's our goal. That's your goal, that we would be in the image of Jesus Christ. We thank you for what you're doing in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.